You're listening to This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes. Not necessarily in that order. This is episode 4 from March 31st, 2016. The Dramatic Moment of Fate. Welcome to This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes, though not necessarily in that order. I'm your host, Beth. Show notes can be found at thistangledskein.com, and you can get in touch with me at comments at thistangledskein.com. I'm also on most forms of social media, including Twitter, Instagram, Ravelry, and Tumblr, as Plexippa. That's P as in Porlock, L-E-X-I-P-P-A. Now is the dramatic moment of fate, Watson, when you hear a step upon the stair which is walking into your life, and you know not whether for good or ill. That Holmes, he does love a touch of drama, doesn't he? That was from The Hound of the Baskervilles, read from my 1930 Doubleday single-volume complete Sherlock Holmes. That's the edition that's known among members of the John H. Watson Society in particular as the W edition. If you run across a copy somewhere, check the copyright page and you will see a single W all by itself for no apparent reason. It seems like I've been hearing about the Hound everywhere these days. Last Friday's episode of Grimm quoted Hound right at the beginning. The world is full of obvious things which nobody by any chance ever observes. Those words sounded pretty ominous, posted right there on the screen like that. They never say where those opening quotes come from. So if you didn't recognize the words, you wouldn't necessarily know. The episode featured a character named Doyle Basque, who did something or other with real estate. So early in the episode, he's on the phone telling his assistant something about calling Stapleton about a Baker Street property. That just made me laugh. And of course, there is a story about a huge and vicious dog who may or may not be real. And a week ago, Elementary had a hound-based episode called Hounded, with brothers Charles and Henry Baskerville. You can probably guess that Charles doesn't make it very far into the show. And a company known as Stapleton Innovations. And some sort of huge, glowing, mysterious animal. There was a discussion that flashed through my Twitter feed, too, about Hound, and why it's so often named as people's favorite of the novels, if not of the canon as a whole. Why is that? I think that it's a story that is easy for people to get into, with rich atmosphere and a narrative that doesn't suddenly go jumping off to another continent for half the book. And really, how can you resist a story about a gigantic, glowing, possibly spectral hound? I mean, even Holmes couldn't resist checking that one out for himself. Today's tea is also Hound of the Baskervilles inspired, a blend created by Bron Midwinter through Adagio called Baskerville Bramble. The blend includes blackberry black tea, caramel black tea, toasted mate, raspberries, cocoa nibs, and cornflowers. Bronze description says it's suitable for a ramble through the city, the downs, or the moors, whether you're searching for a gigantic hound or not. Personally, I'm finding it more than suitable for sipping under today's cloudy gray skies. It's sweet, but not overpoweringly so. I'm definitely going to have to order more, because I only have the small sample tin, and I'm going to get through that right quick, I suspect. I think I'm already about halfway through. 
I got the sample tin as part of an order I placed at the end of February. The very end of February, in fact. On February 29th, Adagio put up a Scottish breakfast blend called Brigadoon that they only sell on Leap Day. I, of course, couldn't resist. And as long as I was placing an order, well, I might have gone a little overboard. In addition to the bag of Brigadoon, I got sample tins of Kara McGee's Baker Street Babes, Mine Palace, and Simon Snow, you'll note, not a Sherlock-inspired tea, and Braun Midwinter's 221B, Scandal, Always 1895, D for Detective, and today's tea, Baskerville Bramble. I did something recently that I hadn't done in quite a while and ordered myself a fat fiber box. I get the emails every month and I usually miss the very small window in which the boxes are available. To be fair, I don't usually try too hard to make it since I have quite a bit of yarn and fiber already. Every once in a while, though, the theme gets me. This one was The Wizard of Oz, one of my very favorite books as a kid. See, while some of you were hanging out with Sherlock Holmes at the age of 10, I was hanging out with Dorothy and the wizard and TikTok. My friend Danny and I tore through the entire series in elementary school. The one that stands out strongest in my memory is Ozma of Oz, with Princess Languadir, with her wardrobe of heads she could change to suit her mood. There weren't any Languadir-inspired items in my box, though. There were beautiful samples of yarn and fiber, a pattern for a pair of knitted slippers, and a stitch marker with a cute little ruby slippers charm. It's sort of funny that the stitch marker is attached to a card featuring a picture of the cover of the book, and you can see clearly that Dorothy is wearing silver slippers, because the red slippers were a change made for the film. Well, I found it funny anyway. I'm looking forward to trying out the fiber samples, because I haven't done any spinning for weeks. I've been doing some knitting here and there. A few weeks ago, I went on a mother-daughter Girl Scout camping trip with my nine-year-old, and I taught the girls how to knit. Well, at least I tried to teach them. It's the sort of thing that takes practice to become comfortable, and one session of maybe an hour can be frustrating if you don't take to it right away. A couple of the girls just weren't into it, but one girl did proclaim, knitting is my life, the next day. My daughter would like me to teach her to purl now, because she really wants to make some of those creatures in the Mochi Mochi Land books. I've been working on a Sleepbot 3000, from Huge and Huggable Mochi Mochi, for her to take on the next scout trip, with her help on a few rows. The big pieces are all done. I have to knit the small pockets and the antenna, and sew the whole thing together, and get a pillow to put inside it. I did finally finish the Irene Adler socks. I knit these from Canon Hand Dyes yarn in the Irene Adler colorway. That was a skein of black and white self-striping yarn, and a mini skein of red yarn for the heels and toes, except I kind of forgot to use it when I started on the toes, so it's only in the heels. Somehow, I managed to knit half of the second heel and then set them aside for weeks. I finished that off and wove in the ends while watching that episode of Grimm that I mentioned earlier. They've had a nice bath with some soak wool wash, so they'll be ready to go to Atlanta with me for 221 Beacon. I'm not entirely happy with the way the heels turned out. I need to look into some other heel options for toe-up socks. Knitters out there, do you have a favorite? Let me know. I also need to work on my color work skills, and by work on, I mean develop some. I'm getting a little practice with the Sleepbot 3000, but I was reminded just the other day of the fingerless mitts based on the pattern of John's Christmas jumper in a scandal in Belgravia that I really want to make. Time to dig through the stash for some appropriate yarn. (music) 
Yarn and fiber aren't the only things that have been arriving on my doorstep. A few more books have appeared as well. I couldn't resist the Color In Classics Sherlock Holmes coloring book from Thunder Bay Books. The back of the book says there are 70 beautiful line art images, but it doesn't mention that some of the pages are awfully similar to each other. It also doesn't mention the groan-worthy puns captioning some of them, like the pipe illustration that says, Smoking Hot, or the words, He's a phony, under Holmes on the telephone. The images for coloring appear on the recto sides of the pages only. On the verso pages are large blank spaces with suggestions for drawing your own image, with various prompts like, Invent your own scruffy disguise, and Design a swirling pattern. Now I have a dilemma. I kind of want to keep the book pristine, but I want to color the pictures. But buying a second copy to color seems like going too far. Bibliophile problems, man. Bibliophile problems. I also received a copy of Sherlock Academy by F.C. Shaw. Set in the 1930s, it's the first in a chapter book series about 11-year-old Raleigh Wilson and his best friend Cecily and their adventures at the Sherlock Academy of Fine Sleuths. It was published last year, but I heard about it just recently. I'm putting together our programming for summer reading at the library, and I booked a puppet show for our opening day. It's called Sherlock Home Run, a whodunit puppet musical. Noteworthy Puppets describes the show this way. Sherlock Home Run, world-famous consulting detective, and his trusty bilingual soccer ball sidekick Watson are out to solve a wacky musical mystery and save the summer games. Sherlock Home Run, a whodunit puppet musical, is a tale of friendship, intrigue, and having the courage to go for the gold. Did I mention Sherlock is a baseball? Or that his deerstalker has a decidedly steampunk appearance? I'm really looking forward to this show. Noteworthy Puppets sent a list of companion books, and I absolutely love that they do that, and Sherlock Academy was one of the few books on it I wasn't familiar with. It will be interesting to see how it compares to the Amanda Lester series. On a different, though still off-the-wall note, I also received a copy of Sherlock Holmes' The Hound of the Baskervilles, a Playmobil interpretation. I ordered it well before publication, so there wasn't even a picture. I was expecting something small, more like a board book than a chapter book. It turns out that it's more like a coffee table book, full of beautiful, full-bleed illustrations staged with Playmobil figurines. The story is an abridged adaptation, and there are a few alterations. The entire scene of deductions from Mortimer's stick, for instance, is absent. And there's this exchange. Not only that, there were other footprints beside those of Sir Charles. Of a man or woman, asked Holmes. Dr. Mortimer came close to the detective, closed his eyes, and said in a muffled voice, those footsteps belong to a hound, Mr. Holmes. A monstrous hound! A gigantic hound! It's not quite, Mr. Holmes, they were the footprints of a gigantic hound. But it works for this version. And see, even Playmobil can't resist the hound. The hound is not one of the stories referenced in Brittany Cavallaro's A Study in Charlotte, which I read in the quiet time during that Girl Scout trip. I love the book. I didn't want to put it down and stop reading. It's a young adult novel about the descendants of Holmes and Watson in the present day. In this version, we have Charlotte Holmes, great-great-granddaughter of Sherlock, and Jamie Watson, great-great-grandson of John, who meet for the first time at prep school in Connecticut. They're both still British. Charlotte is there as part of a kind of family-imposed exile, and Jamie is there because he's been offered a scholarship his mother wouldn't let him refuse. Charlotte is brilliant and strange, keeps her own science lab, and plays the violin. Jamie is a rugby player and all-round upstanding young man, trying to fit in at this new school and utterly captivated by Charlotte. 
The two of them have to solve a murder mystery that puts their own lives in danger, going up against someone who is determined to recreate certain canonical stories in a lovely, twisty, meta sort of thing. There is some content related to drug use and to sexual assault, so I definitely recommend the book to teens and adults. Finally, one of the benefits of being the webmistress for the John H. Watson Society is that I've had the opportunity to read the forthcoming issue in the fiction series already, The Doctor and the Duelist, written by Eleanor Gray and illustrated by Basil Chapp. As promised in the synopsis, it illuminates a critical turning point in the nature of the intimate friendship of Watson and Holmes. The story will give folks some things to think about in regards to gender and sex and love and relationships in the time and place of our beloved canonical stories. And the illustrations are gorgeous. Members of the Society will receive a copy along with the spring issue of The Watsonian as part of their membership dues. Both publications are headed to the printer now, so the cutoff to join and receive a member copy or to order a copy otherwise, is this Sunday, the 3rd of April. After that date, the PDF version will be available for purchase. So if you're listening to this sometime in the future, that is still an option. Also headed to the printer is the new monograph, Leah Gwynn's Sherlock Holmes and the Adventure of the Blank Page. This book looks at what a good canon faithful story needs and what to avoid, as well as how to create successful alternate universes. I absolutely love it. Leah Gwynn's style is chatty and humorous, and she packs a lot of information into 60-some pages. The footnotes are a treasure. It's also available for pre-order on the site, and it is not included in the membership dues. Like the other publications, it will have a limited print run, but PDF copies will remain available for sale after that cutoff date of Sunday, April 3rd, 2016. In the last episode, I talked about Michael Didbin's The Last Sherlock Holmes Story. I said that I didn't really think of it as quite a horror story, because I associate the horror genre with supernatural elements. My wife, who listens to the podcast even though she doesn't identify as a Sherlockian or a yarn wrangler, says I'm wrong on that count. She pointed out all the slasher movies that are certainly horror but involve no supernatural elements at all. Fair enough. What do you think? Drop me a comment on the show notes and let me know. Speaking of the last Sherlock Holmes story, which, of course, involves Jack the Ripper, reminds me that, much like the Hound, Jack the Ripper seems to be cropping up everywhere I look these days. This past Monday, I went out to Roman's Bookstore in Pasadena to see Lindsay Fay, who was there on tour for her new book, Jane Steele. That book does have a serial killer. Don't worry, that's not a spoiler. But it's not Jack the Ripper. Jack is in Lindsay Fay's first novel, Dust and Shadow, which I picked up while I was there and started reading while waiting in the signing queue. I've also just gotten a copy of Bonnie McBird's Art in the Blood, which takes place in 1888, just after a disastrous Ripper investigation, says the official description. The Kindle version is currently 99 cents on Amazon, which is an excellent deal. Guess what I'll be reading on the plane to Atlanta. Last episode, I also mentioned the essay I was working on about Charles Augustus Milverton. That essay is now done and submitted, and I'm looking forward to reading everyone else's contributions to the finished book. While I was working on it, I ran across a reference to Patricia Dodd Flynn's The Mistress and the Maidservant, originally published in a 1978 issue of the Serpentine Muse. A little digging revealed that it was reprinted in Serpentine Musings, Volume 1, a copy of which came to my house in very short order. The reference to it had inspired me to write a little fiction piece about Agatha, Milverton's housemaid, and I really wanted to read the whole thing. The essay is excellent, as is the rest of the anthology. 
which is to be expected if you're familiar with the adventuresses of Sherlock Holmes and their journal, and I am enjoying reading it immensely. I'm also still working on that little piece of fiction, and I'm considering submitting it to the retired beekeepers of Sussex for the summer issue of the Practical Handbook of Bee Culture. The focus of this volume is Experience of Women, which is certainly a topic rich with areas to explore. The submission deadline is May 1st, 2016. If you haven't taken a look at the retired beekeepers and their journal, I highly recommend it. I've arranged to get print copies of volumes 1 and 2 at 221BCon this weekend. It's hard to believe that Con Weekend is already almost here. Looking at the schedule, it appears the panel on Sherlock Holmes and children's literature did not make the final cut. I will be part of the panel for Ash, BSI, and other Sherlockian organizations, representing the John H. Watson Society. I'll have those Watsonian badge ribbons to hand out all weekend, or until I run out. That's all I have for this month. So until next time, I bid you goodbye. You've been listening to This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes. Not necessarily in that order. Show notes can be found at thistangledskein.com, and you can reach me by email at comments at thistangledskein.com. I can be found on most forms of social media, including Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Ravelry as Plexipa. That's P as in Porlock, L-E-X-I-P-P-A. Reviews or star ratings on iTunes are always appreciated.